Welcome to the 20th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas and talk about particular keywords in this current historical moment. Today we have a keyword combo, uh, which is both health and food. And as guests, we have Søren Oskegaard and uh, Alan, would you like to introduce Søren? Certainly I would. Søren Oskegaard is professor of marketing at the University of Southern Denmark in Udense. Um, he's well known to generations of marketing students because he's one of the co-authors of Consumer Behavior European Perspective textbook, which I think is a standard uh, book for, for uh, many university courses. In addition to other books, he's edited such as uh, Nordic Consumer Culture and Canonical Authors in Consumption Theory, uh, which he recently edited us with Benoit Elbrun. Uh, and of course, he has published countless numbers of uh, journal articles as well. So hello, Søren. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Alan. Hello, Joel. Thank you for, for having me. This is a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We're delighted indeed to have have you with us. The key word that we want to talk about today is health and food. Where is a good way to begin thinking about these issues? If one should begin with a cliche, uh, you might say that uh, the cliche "you are what you eat" uh, is taken super, super seriously uh, by a lot of people these days, and uh, and the the nexus of food and health has become like a prime cultural trope in many contexts. This is this is a bit odd for a variety of reasons. It's it's not odd because it sounds strange. It sounds pretty straightforward. And I think that straightforwardness is, is kind of part of the lure that, of course, our bodies are constituted uh, through uh, its biological existence as a throughput system and uh, some interaction with the outside world. From that perspective, it seems fairly uh, sort of obvious to conclude that uh, uh, whatever you feed into that throughput uh, system must be uh, decisive for uh, the quality of your constitution as a system, right? So this preoccupation is, is, is uh, maybe understandable, in particular in a period uh, that we could designate as a healthiest uh, epoch in time, and I'll come back to the notion of healthism a little bit later. The funny thing, of course, is that if you ask most medical doctors, they would say, uh, eat eat a little bit of everything and, and uh, not too much of it. Uh, then you'll be perfectly fine and healthy. That's the, that's the golden rule of how to eat healthily. Uh, and it's one of the uh, only rules, if you're a little bit... Uh, polemic, it's one of the few rules that are not followed, uh, at least uh, by many people. Of course, consumers are just as different as other people, and, and so we should never generalize uh, or homogenize uh, across large populations. But a, a, lot, of, a lot of people uh, will look at this counsel from the general practitioner and uh, find it lacking. It's, that's not good enough advice. There must be something more you can do. So, so when I look at the food and health literature, which I've been working with uh, for uh, a decade or, or so, a little bit more actually, it has kind of two major elements. Uh, it has elements of risk management and of pleasure management. Uh, 
Uh, but when you look at what is what is published and what is discussed uh, in in the field of uh, at least in the field of marketing and consumption, it's astonishing to conclude that uh, when we think about how much pleasure food provides uh, for all of us or most of us at least, it's astonishing to conclude uh, how much of the literature is is about not about the pleasure but about the risk, and this is of course because we live in a time with a very heavy. Uh, policing of food right that food is is no longer just a, an innocent it's just uh, like a daily practice it's become a highly reflexive domain where uh, various uh, dimensions of quality in terms of health in terms of uh, production mode in terms of uh, culinary value gastronomical traditional etc etc uh, insertions all of these uh, dimensions mean a lot uh, for a lot of, of people in the contemporary society. When we look at food and health, it's, it's useful to think of, of, of this nexus and the rise of the nexus to something that is very, very prominent. When I, when I think of my own childhood, and I grew up in a, in a doctor's family where health, of course, uh, the healthiness of, of your life was, was an issue, but it, it was never something that was tied profoundly to our diets or the meals or what we ate. Health was uh, something that attacked you like a virus or bacteria that made you ill and uh, made you have to lie down for a day or two and then it went away and you could uh, get back up. So this idea that, uh, that, that health was something profoundly looked, uh, linked to diet is, was completely alien uh, at, at that point in time. And we're talking here 1960s and 70s. So although it's a long time ago, it's not that long time ago. So that nexus uh, must be seen also in, in, in relation to some particular cultural backdrops that, that have devel developed since then. So we can, of course, uh, think about uh, what we could call consumer culture's technification of the self, that consumer culture technicizes the project of the self uh, by treating all problems that we might encounter as solvable through some kind of consumption choice, as Don Slater has pointed out, among many others. A contemporary, uh, and following from this technification, a contemporary uh, nutritionist discourse that in a lot of, uh, with a lot of modern consumers, when they feel that there's something wrong in their bodily functions, there's something that, that is not exactly as it should be, um, the first uh, point that they address is it's probably something that I'm eating. You know, whatever is wrong with me, uh, I should start or stop eating something. So we locate a lot of the sources for various kinds of, of illnesses or the food intake. As I said, uh, that there's this, this view uh, that you are what you eat is taken super, super seriously. Then there are, of course, uh, new media technologies, uh, uh, pluralization of knowledge systems, uh, democratization of information. Everybody can have a health blog or a health log or YouTube channel uh, giving good advice about this, that and whatnot. So um, this, of course, helps proliferate messages uh, about this nexus between food and health, which is so salient and so so important to many people. So, of course... This plethora of messages also contributes to the turmoil in, in the food and health, uh, the nutrition homescapes, uh, generating a lot of uncertainty, uh, counter-messaging, moralities about what is pure, what is natural, 
uh, appropriation of, of responsibility. So there's also a deep linkage to a kind of a, a neoliberalized, responsibilized uh, consumer. Again, if there's something wrong with you, it's probably something you did. It's, it's nothing just hits you, right? And we can see the same. This also, of course, in the treating of the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, that uh, although you can get accidentally contaminated, of course, it, it, it so happens, the general uh, politics is that there's a lot you can do uh, to prevent this from happening. So the whole era that we live in can be said to be one of healthism, which is a neologism termed by, by uh, political economist uh, Crawford uh, a few decades ago, which sort of refers to health as being kind of a supreme value that, that uh, is mythologized in that it's, it's unquestionable. There is no way you can question the value of health. It's, it's kind of uh, an absolute value that reigns over many other valorizations in contemporary society. So in order to understand that, of course, we can, we can unfold the full Foucauldian Monty battery of uh, the constitution of the subject under such healthist conditions where health is a supreme value, various technologies of self, to the extent that this is also part of, of, of public policymaking, which, of course, it is in many countries. It's also an issue of governmentality and of, of uh, biopolitics. We can keep uh, these sort of uh, classic Foucauldian uh, encyclopedic entries uh, in mind, in the back of our minds uh, throughout uh, this, this little discussion, uh, then uh, that, that, that might be useful. Previously, we had Bernadette Capellini talking about males with reference to Pierre Bourdieu's uh, theories of uh, social capital. Um, but you want to emphasize uh, governmentality, biopolitics from Michel Foucault instead. So perhaps could you start by explaining, maybe introduce what these concepts of, of governmentality and biopolitics are and perhaps how they both overlap and are distinct from each other, please. I think I would start by by saying that I don't I don't see those as mutually excluding because the, the way the impact, the social impact of various uh, biopolitical strategies also highly differs based on uh, social class and cultural, uh, social capital, uh, economic capital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, healthy eating is, of course, not a classless uh, practice. It's a highly classified practice, uh, and and so uh, this this uh, approach complements rather than replaces uh, Benedetta's uh, approach. Uh, so, so. Uh, very briefly said, uh, you could say that uh, governmentality refers to uh, a kind of, of exercise of power where principles for good behavior are less enforced by rules and restrictions uh, forbidding and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, sort of strict enactments of, of constraints and more by internalizations of, of the right principles, right? It's this nexus of what is government and what is mental uh, that, uh, that Foucault points out with his notion of governmentality. In the contemporary society, power is, is exercised uh, uh, to the neoliberal consumer through what uh, Sulkunen called uh, uh, epistolar power, that is 
uh, we are constantly getting letters from the government that are explaining to us uh, what would be the right and the correct thing to do, but we are not, uh, or at least uh, many governments are uh, shying away from, you know, forbidding what uh, that which is deemed dangerous or unhealthy to us. But we will we will get uh, a long stream of messages. Uh, demonizing and explaining to us why we shouldn't drink too much, why we should not smoke, why we should not eat these types of foods, and uh, and so on and so forth. And and this whole uh, uh, this whole uh, exercise is an example or part of of the general uh, biopolitics, which Foucault defines as the politics uh, oriented towards. Governing the population, the demographic, uh, the demographic of the of the population, and its condition, uh, that the population live uh, what is uh, deemed good lives. So, so those two notions are highly uh, uh, linked to, to each other. And the, the point uh, is, of course, that uh, that this 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 kind of exercise of power, is, uh, as always with Foucault, uh, not so much uh, a matter of one agent having the power and deciding over the other as it is a relation of power that is inherent in in the in the social relationship between the various agents and can you um, frame this in terms of the emergence of the person or the subject how they become processed by these uh, forms of governmentality and of biopolitics and again, I mean, as I said, uh, if, if if we go back to the beginning, it, it's it's a matter of of taking this dictum of you are what you eat, not just uh, as an expression of the physical being of the person, but also of the of the mental and of the of the spiritual and uh, the uh, personality, the self uh, aspect of the eater, so to speak. So, uh, for a lot of people, we can see that in the research. Uh, the choices uh, of what you do in order to keep healthy, the way you decide to eat or not to eat certain uh, types of food, etc., etc., is a very central constitutive element of the self, uh, of this notion of self, right? So, uh, so it's not just a matter of, of, of physical building blocks, but also a matter of moral and, and uh, mental uh, building blocks that we get. Uh, from from the decisions of uh, what to eat and what not to eat. Sir, and how should we then today think about the ontology of food itself uh, in the sense that in a future episode, Eric Arno will be talking a lot about ecosophia or the idea that we as a species, we as a collective subjectivity, if you will, we should we humans should rethink our entire relationship with nature and the planet or any future or, or to, be, or to be feasible. Uh, and when you think of food, you often do, it's a very objective thing. We consume food, we gorge on food. Food is this objectivized thing that we indulge in, we stuff it in, into ourselves. Food is mass produced. There is a very strong subject-object relationship with food. Maybe food doesn't get very much credit in this sense. Uh, do, do you feel that we have a healthy ontological relationship with what we eat these days. <laughs> uh, I don't know who we are. I, I think some more than others. 
Um, let me start by saying that, that I, I completely subscribe uh, to the EcoSofia vision, and I think that uh, uh, food is a is a splendid example that that you that that um, the whole dichotomy of nature and culture, or situating humanity outside somehow outside of nature, is a mutilating way of thinking about our position in the universe, and it's definitely part of the misery of the unsustainable living, etc., etc. So, so I, I completely buy into that uh, logic. I think that, that food is, is, is an obvious example of, of, of that which is most biological is also that which is most cultural. And, and it makes no sense uh, to separate the two. I mean, a separation can always only be analytical and, and not something, you know, uh, that happens in real life because there is no way you can separate the biological from the cultural. But of course, it's part of the misery with and and part of the misery of the ontology of food or part of our schizophrenia maybe is that we have this distinction and we don't know really what to do with it. So one scheme that I, one structuration that I've used in a number of in a number of papers distinguishes the ontology of food as being for, for different types of people as being rooted in either a cultural and a culinary logic, gastronomical logic, if you wish, versus the ontology of food being rooted in a nutritionist logic instead. And and of course, you, it doesn't take a lot to to translate those into culture versus nature or culture versus biology but it's i just think that that's a that's a mutilating uh, reduction uh, nevertheless uh, when when people talk about food and health to to us researchers they talk uh, almost always in in terms of either a culinary logic of references healthy food is food that follows certain culinary principles and then, of course, people can debate and discuss, and they do argue about which culinary principles that is. Uh, Japanese food is wonderful because it's uh, lean and fat-free and lo lots of fish and uh, all kinds of other. And I, oh, no, 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 Mediterranean is full of vegetables and olive oil and all kinds of things that are good for you. No, no, no. So, so there, but, but there's, there's, there's a reference to a, a certain type of, of wisdom uh, that is inherent in certain cuisines that are deemed good for you as opposed to uh, other types of cuisines, American fast food culture, uh, classic Nordic eating, which is too heavy and uh, too few vegetables and too much meat and potatoes and not uh, much else, right? So, so they're, you know, they're the heroes and villains in the, in the, in the culinary world. As opposed to the nutritional uh, or nutritionist logic, which kind of decomposes food into nutrients and ingredients and just sees that the sort of the biofunctional uh, capacity of the various elements in the food uh, without any consideration for uh, how these elements fit into a particular culinary or gastronomic structure. And then, of course, the nutritionalist logic versus the culinary logic can be observed sort of more devotedly with a heavy focus on the principle and the idealism or more pragmatically, right? So we have like a, a wonderful fourfold model that uh, social scientists, social theorists love to, to establish so that they can make order in this chaotic world. So I think uh, the, the ontology of food, uh, to get back to your question, 
would benefit from from sort of dissolving this this uh, very uh, dichotomic uh, separation between that which is nutritional and uh, and biological functional if biofunctional if you wish and that and that which is uh, culinary I'm mindful of the work of Ben Fine. I don't know if you're familiar with his studies of uh, cultures of consumptions, but he makes what, to my mind, is a very interesting and worthwhile intervention into these type of arguments, namely that the cultural appreciation of food, especially when it comes to trying to nudge people towards healthy eating, kind of misses the point. And the point being that what gets, what enters the supply chain is what will be consumed. So he noticed, for example, that once the middle classes were persuaded to adopt a more healthy lifestyle, that some of the fatty content um, of, of certain desserts, for example, was just simply dumped into some of the uh, cheaper foods in the supermarkets. And what happened then was this kind of incredible transfer of fat from one class of society to another. And suddenly we have this phenomenon of working class people becoming um, uh, more and more obese while middle class people commit themselves to this ritual of, uh, of, of self-discipline, again with the problem that they're diverting uh, the, the, the fatty content elsewhere. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting. What, what do you think of that argument that it's possible to overstate the cultural dimensions of all of this and instead we might better focus on what's happening in our supply chains and all of this sugar, for example, where is it going well, I, I think that's that's a, that's a that's an excellent point, and it's it's a, it's a great example of of what I have called the the context of context in another setting, is that that we we must look uh, sort of behind the uh, the immediate choices made in the marketplace because these choices are already made in 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 an existing universe of goods that has uh, you know particular production processes, particular supply chains particular types of exposures, particular ways of being present uh, in front of or not in front of uh, particular groups of consumers. So that is obviously a very uh, significant change in the sense that the whole, uh, the whole sort of this, this preoccupation with, with food and health, as you mentioned, is very much a, a middle class phenomenon. Healthism as an ideology is a, is a middle class phenomenon. This is why uh, the whole food and health discussion also very easily becomes uh, like a class struggle uh, between various uh, types of moralizing agents that are trying to make uh, you know, truth claims for uh, how to live the good life between various social groups. The problem being uh, that most, most governments are not, at this point in time at least, willing to enact a very strong policing of what is available in the food market, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, the free market uh, and its agents should not be held back from, from exercising their activities. And so, because I, I do think that, that there's a general knowledge uh, that, that there's a lot of junk food out there. I think most consumers, at least uh, the ones that I have encountered here in Denmark, are well aware that that there's a lot of junk. It it may not be so easy for them to pinpoint and locate, and may not agree completely on what are examples of bad food and and junk food. And and secondly, 
there is also this uh, this skepticism uh, towards uh, too much governmental uh, control, in particular in certain uh, social classes that have not sort of bought into this to the the governmentality of of contemporary bio, biopolitics. That is done very much with a reference to excesses uh, or excessive focus on on healthy eating. Many uh, middle and lower class consumers will will talk about how normal eating is is the best way to go by uh, you know structuring uh, your food and health uh, life plan so to speak because uh, of of course healthy eating is 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 important and salient for for all of us but uh, there should be space for those things that are bad as well because that is what make uh, life uh, cozy and uh, interesting and uh, there's this battalion fascination with the excess in most of us that that uh, come to the come to the forefront uh, now and then so the discourse of health that is based on normality uh, on normal eating will have these uh, basic references to if we, if we just eat like normal people eat Uh, then it's not the eating that that will make you sick or kill you. What normal people do uh, will also include, uh, uh, you know, some red wine and uh, some beer and uh, some uh, peanuts and some candy and uh, ice cream. So there's there's this uh, reference to normalcy, which is uh, or normality, which is uh, a highly Uh, applied risk management strategy uh, among uh, many people. Well, uh, speaking of these kind of excesses in the ideology or the cultural appreciations of food, when you look at certain kind of lifestyle trends relating food, there's certain kind of uh, movements, if you will, happening. I'm thinking of slow food here, which is, of course, now a large trend that you could maybe call this kind of romantic rekindling of sort of an more authentic idea of your relationship with food. But there's also this very other kind of trend that that you also sort of mentioned uh, already, which could be linked to ideas of, for example, biohacking, you know, enhanced performance, breaking all the food down to very essentialized components and trying to amplify and intensify those. So if the slow food is a sort of romantic, I don't know, cultural discourse, then this kind of uh, performance discourse would be this sort of machinic ultra-modernist idea with, with food, I guess. So are there any other interesting trends going on? Uh, or or what, what, what would you think of these kind of different kind of vectors? These are, these are two kind of uh, basically the extremes of, of, of the polar distinction between uh, the culinary logic on the one hand and the nutritionist logic on the other hand. So you draw, draw those to the extreme you get this romanticized uh, slow food uh, on the one hand, and you get the movement towards biohacking and uh, uh, performance optimization, the microbiolo- sometimes on the microbiological level on the other. Obviously, there are many other tendencies that are interesting to observe. Uh, for example, food is uh, in these days uh, not just uh, a matter of responsibility for the personal health, but also for the planetary health which we can see in heavy tendencies towards growth in vegetarianism and veganism. Uh, With veganism, uh, there's another uh, dimension 
added, which which has to do with a very very justifiable moral uh, outrage against uh, modern animal uh, husbandry or modern animal production uh, systems, right? But both of these uh, tendencies are embedded in 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 the general policing of food, where police the the, the politics of food. Uh, and the individual responsabilization reaches uh, a whole new set of dimensions, not just the matter of preserving cultural patterns and slow food and respect for for certain uh, qualities of life on the one hand, or the personal uh, optimization and biohacking on the other, uh, but also the personalized responsabilization for uh, planetary uh, sustainability. Instead of looking at food and health uh, in, in, the, in the consumption sphere, if we look a little bit at the food and health among the marketers and the consumer researchers, of course, we have a lot of colleagues that are interested in, in food and uh, in particular in, in consumer psychology. Together with a, a wonderful young colleague, Xenia Silchenko, uh, we tried to, to map tendencies in how we as, as market researchers uh, approach the food and health universe by looking at uh, a massive amount of, of, of articles published in, in, in major journals, Xenia, because she did uh, all the work uh, or the most important part of the work, was able to locate what we could classify as, as uh, three major discourses. And I mentioned them because they're, they're, they're somewhat uh, tied to the, to the two extreme uh, tendencies uh, that you just mentioned, uh, the sort of the extreme uh, slow food gastro tendency versus the uh, the extreme nutritionist bio machine uh, orientation. So if we look at, at 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 the work we do, there's a number of, of of papers and there's a number of projects that take a point of departure in what we call the nutri edu discourse, which is basically a matter of uh, believing in informational campaign educating. Uh, responsible consumers, hence the edu, in terms of how to make the correct nutritional choices, right? So, so food and health is a matter of uh, poorly informed consumers making bad choices, and if we can just inform them well enough, uh, they will make better choices. In addition to that, we, we also see a number of papers adopting uh, and this is, this is, of course, in general terms, a uh, prolongation of this uh, nutritionist uh, approach to food, which finds its sort of its, its epitome in, the, in, the, in this uh, optimization biohacking process. On the other hand, we have, uh, we have uh, the, what, what we call the, the win-win discourse, which is very much a kind of... Uh, oh, the market is developing in all the right directions. We have better products. We have more focus on product quality. We have more uh, focus on local produce. We have more focus on non-use of of, uh, additives, uh, non-use of uh, uh, the various uh, sugary additions that Alan mentioned, etc. We have more organic produce. uh, So so the market is self-correcting and we are getting there. So this is the kind of food and health research which is kind of celebratory of, uh, among other waves or movements, uh, the slow food movement or the movement towards sort of the resurrection of healthy culinary 
principles and good quality. And obviously, this is this is this is also a discourse that is highly class distinctive in the sense that this this has to do with highly sort of middle class middle class consumption. Then there's a third kind of discourse that we haven't talked so much about, but but which which we call the simple solutions. And it's also quite sort of nutritionally oriented in the sense that, oh, obesity is a very simple matter of people consuming uh, too many calories and moving too little. So if they if they would just stop doing that or uh, and start doing something else, uh, start exercising more, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, problem would be solved. This is also the field of research that that uh, contains a lot of uh, sort of behaviorist approaches, nudging techniques. Oh, if we, uh, you know, if we, if we make the, pli- the plate smaller or larger, uh, we, then the portions will be different. If we make the cups smaller, larger, etc., etc. So, so, so this is kind of a, uh, uh, you know, the nutritional, the obesity or the unhealthy food problem is actually fairly simple, and we can we can we can try to fix it with with uh, some interventions that are quite simple. A recent marketing example comes to mind, uh, and it made the headlines uh, in Finland some time ago. And it's the dramatic rise of the popularity of added protein in various kind of foodstuffs or snacks or what have you. Of course, that sort of is a function of the growing interest in health and exercise and gyms and that kind of activity in society as well. So what happened is, of course, that now then they started adding protein to all all kinds of yogurts and what have you, chocolate bars, so that you would get you know more fit after your exercise. All these activities, of course, were were escalated by massive marketing uh, programs by various companies producing these products. Well, the funny thing now is that the waste wastewater management and you know plumbing management in Finland has noticed that there's a massive uptick in protein in the waste that humans produce. Beautiful. So basically... You wash it all out. Yeah, the marketing apparatus produced a system where now everything went insane about protein and people are now literally shitting it, shitting this marketing machine back into the into the system as a negative side effect. That just came to my mind as a good example of a, a little bit more critical win-win situation. I don't know. Maybe it's a good example of what we should do with most most marketing in input. Just shit it out again, perhaps. Yeah, no, I, and and of course this is this is a this is a, an example of of market uh, exploitation of this food and health nexus that is that is and the nutritionist uh, discourse that is um, reigning. But it's also, in a sense, it's it's kind of uh, it's very old hat. I remember being uh, I, I was working for a time at Lund University in Sweden. Uh, in a department of marketing where there was uh, also a food research center and one of the uh, one of the big uh, you know the big revelations that uh, these researchers were uh, pursuing was what we called back then functional foods right so this was a big this was a big issue uh, and today nobody believes in functional foods anymore except maybe uh, in, in in that functional foods has become like a generalized way of looking at foods in, in many ways, and so this is this this I see also as a little bit of a like I like a uh, away from the past. You know that we can still launch uh, uh, the functionality of something or improve the functionality of something by adding uh, this and that to a to a food item. 
the irony of it all is, of course, that uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, it, it reminds me of a different uh, and, and somewhat uh, more serious case when my mother-in-law was sick with cancer. And of course, when you're sick with uh, cancer and it looks like it can't be terminal, people are, are searching for all kinds of potential solutions. And there was this uh, sort of information floating around the internet that uh, the degree of acidity, uh, the acidity, what's it called? The basic uh, acid balance in your body would be uh, decisive to how well your body would be able to fight cancer because uh, some Swedish medical doctor, uh, it proved to be the, the, the uh, offspring of, of this belief, uh, once demonstrated back in the 1930s that, that cancer cells couldn't grow in, in a particular environment. So there was this, uh, there was this, this search for, for uh, you know, if you could just beef up your, your acidity, I think it was in, in your body, uh, you, could, you could fight cancer cells uh, that way. Um, the problem being, of course, that uh, just like uh, with the, uh, the, the peeing and shitting out the, uh, uh, the proteins, the, the body, the human body in itself maintains very much its own acid, basic acid balance. Uh, so if you, if you consume more acidity, then the, the, the body will compensate for that. So, so there's a, it's a homeostatic uh, kind of, of process uh, involved here. So, uh, and, and, and so doctors who, who were trying to comment on this way of eating your way th to curing cancer said, but, but you can't do that. And even, I mean, you can't bring your balance out of order. If you eat five, that's why I came to think of it, of it. if you eat five kilos of protein powder per day, then you may sort of bring your balance a little bit in disorder, but uh, and and you will not be healthy from that. So 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 again, there's this sort of belief in the quick fix that the market or the food can provide for you uh, and help you sort of alleviate all your illnesses and bad and bad things. If I could push your attention towards the current moment in terms of eating and health, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. So firstly, a lot of people have been in lockdown, not exercising, gorging themselves on alcohol and comfort food eating. But also we get uh, this rise of people looking at internet recipes. For example, uh, one of the first objects that disappeared from the supermarket shelves in Britain was yeast. And then sourdough has become, seems the staple now of, of lockdown living. Sourdough is the most searched uh, item on the internet. So how can we talk about this current moment in terms of all these dynamics? It seems we have this great collision of a health scare, I mean, the most extreme sort of health, global health matter of, of our lifetimes uh, that coincides with all these interesting food cultures. One of the things that have uh, with this COVID-19 crisis is that uh, for once, you couldn't uh, sort of uh, apply the nutritionist discourse that if you get COVID-19, it's probably because you ate something that you shouldn't have eaten. Yeah, that I, th I think I haven't seen or heard that argument, or at least not in, in, in any larger scale. Of. You're forgetting about the theory that it came from a wet market in Wuhan. In that sense, yeah, of course, you shouldn't eat uh, bats and uh, yeah, that, that's, that's for sure. But no, the whole thing started because humans should not eat bats. But at least in our part of the world, the health priests have not been able to mobilize a food discourse concerning uh, 
whether you would be more or less prone to uh, to attract the virus based on what you eat. That, that's 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 what I'm saying. So that's back to Eric Arnold's uh, Ecosophia set of reflections again in our relations to nature, uh, the pressure on the biodiversity and the natural environments, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So. I think that that uh, the the bad impact on our lifestyles points to to another uh, point of interest of mine, namely the the morality of this whole thing, the, the 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 whole food and health domain, and in particular the food and health research is replete with morality of food items. That there are things you can eat, and there are things you cannot eat, which is basically a, an approach that neglects that people don't eat ingredients; they eat whole meals or they have whole food lifestyles, etc., etc. So, so, and nothing is hardly ever composed of exclusively healthy uh, in and by themselves items. And, and there is nothing unhealthy about whipped cream. It's just a matter of, of, the, uh, of the amount and the regularity and, uh, and so on and so forth, right? Moralities of self-control. You've mentioned yourself, ah, oh, we are just indulging and sitting at home. Uh, the, the real the real consumer and again this is a middle class logic that is also cast against the lower class the, the working classes the the morality of self-control of, of of the individual that is contained and does not go into excesses etc etc uh, the morality of, of responsible market agents uh, the, the, the the corporations as well as the consumer in a neoliberal market model and then the morality of the body and the stigmatization of of the fat uh, of the fat body uh, the the scare of of gaining weight etc cetera, etc cetera. it's interesting that um, recently uh, there was a report from danish health authorities addressing the uh, weight and obesity problems in danish municipalities and they were going to provide some principles for how to how to address and attack this problem and the Danish Association for of uh, General Practitioners, they opted out of the report because they say, but this is a report that uh, uses uh, very, very uh, old and uh, abandoned ideas about how to address uh, uh, the obesity problem because you basically still address it like, oh, it's a simple solution. You, it's a matter of a, a simple balance between caloric intake and caloric use. And uh, if you can change that equation a little bit you can lose weight and if you are too uh, if you are overweight or obese uh, the cure that you must uh, that you must undergo is to lose the excess weight but as this association pointed out uh, there is uh, no evidence that that as a long-term project will help anybody become healthier or happier for that matter diets generally speaking don't work so why are we keeping uh, you know this moralizing uh, and stigmatizing discourse uh, alive, when we should address uh, the issue of healthy living uh, through very different uh, parameters than weight loss. Weight in and by itself, and that uh, most uh, medical doctors will will sign up for, except those in the obesity research, because uh, they live, uh, of course, from uh, from getting money uh, from uh, politicians and foundations, but. Uh, most most wise doctors will say weight in and by itself is a poor indicator of your health, uh, except when you are in really extreme uh, situations. Uh, 
So all of this uh, was just to, to sort of point out the moralizing that was hidden in your, oh, during this uh, corona crisis, we have had all these, uh, you know, bad habits that we have had, et cetera, et cetera. Well, maybe we've, we've discovered uh, the quality of, at least in this household, we've discovered, no, we didn't discover because we knew, but we have had uh, more time to enjoy and discover uh, the quality of home-baked uh, bread uh, as opposed to the corporate versions of, 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 of bread that we can buy in, in the supermarkets. So yes, I confess, we have also been part of the uh, sourdough craze, but uh, I think, I think in, in all respect, it, it started before Corona crisis. But of course, we've had extra time and, uh, and more time together at home uh, uh, in order to pursue this. I don't think that was bad for us in any particular way. I think actually it may have, uh, uh, if, if anything, sort of uh, improved uh, life quality in, in a variety of ways. Um, I'm not sure if this really qualifies as a good question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Because I'm always, as usual, I'm interested in the excesses and the libidinal. So one thing that somehow puzzles me, because I'm, I'm not a big food person, I don't really take a huge interest in food, is the very idea of food porn nowadays. The pornographization of food images and, and stuff like that. And I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just genuinely puzzled by it. Yeah, uh, for that question, I'm a, I'm a little bit split because on the one hand, I... I so, so let me just make a, make a personal response to that question. I'm a little bit uh, divided because on the one hand, just at dinner table tonight, we sat and talked about what have we sort of passed on to our oldest son. And yeah, the, the love of food and the devotion to, you know, the, the taste and taking the time to produce a good meal, taking the time to sit down. And, and enjoy it and, and uh, you know, discuss the nuances and the difference between and had we done this instead, it might have been a different, you know. All of these, all of these uh, aspects and elements that uh, come to mind when, when foodies are, are together. So, so yes, uh, I am and we are uh, foodies. On the other hand, for, for us and for me, and in, in many ways, it's a very odd thing to do to sort of expose this love of food it it's it's something to be in it's it's not something to be expressed in for the general public it's something to be lived in the moment right so so there's a if we can go back to to Doug Holt's old distinction between uh, autotelic uh, consumption and instrumental consumption food porn is when uh, the love of of food and uh, the love of presentation and taste etc cetera, etc cetera, becomes instrumentalized. It goes from being autotelic. It's a goal in and by itself, something that we pursue for us and for the people that are with us uh, in, in, in this. And of course, we should not forget that, that, that food is basically a, a, a social matter. It's a matter of sharing, of, of togetherness, the meal, the practice of the meal, as, as Benedetta, who already uh, mentioned once, has, has, has uh, published a nice book on, is, is is one of the most basic social practices that we have. But in today's age of, of, of social media, et cetera, et cetera, of course, this social has, uh, has exploded. And that's, I suppose, that's the process you refer to as, as food porn. And for me, this is when, when this love and this, this, uh, these practices that are oriented towards 
what the French call with a very nice word, convivialité. Conviviality, I suppose. So that, that word expresses the joint life that comes out of, of the meal-sharing process. And, uh, and if you ask me, that should be autotelic. If, if you put that joy and this conviviality, this conviviality, uh, in front of, 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 of uh, as, as, a, as a power, as a force that is supposed to draw something else, lead to some other things than just the togetherness and the conviviality that is made in the moment. Uh, then you go from an autotelic to an instrumentalized uh, logic. I would say, uh, Joel, uh, with a reference to our mutual good friend, uh, Jean Baudrillard, then we go from, from uh, symbolic exchange, uh, a symbolic exchange situation to uh, a political economy of the sign situation. Thank you, Søren. This has been a very good talk. Thank you. And I'm happy to. Thank you, Søren. You're welcome. And I haven't even finished my beers. It's just too much talking. 